Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. A hot August night in 1989, the Beverly Hills mansion of entertainment executive Jose Menendez. He and his wife Kitty are watching television in the family room. Suddenly, a brutal volley of shotgun fire. Jose Menendez is killed by a close-in shot to the head. He has five other shotgun wounds. Kitty Menendez's body is riddled with shotgun pellets. She had 10 wounds on her. She was getting blasted all over that room. Don't tell my parents. Pardon me? Don't tell my parents. Uh, were they shot? Yes. They were shot? Yes. The voice of Lyle Menendez, then 21 years old, who tells police that he and his brother Eric, then 18, discovered the bodies as they returned home from a movie. Lyle and Eric Menendez lied successfully for months. But if their crime was a horror movie, their undoing was the stuff of soap opera. Eric, in torment, confessed his crime to his therapist, Dr. Jerome Ozeal. Lyle then also admitted to the murders. Their confession was overheard by Ozeal's mistress, Judalon Smith, and she went to the police. Lyle was arrested in California. Eric, who had been traveling overseas, voluntarily flew home to surrender. Three years later, the Menendez brothers went on trial for their lives. I was just firing as I went into the room. I just started firing. In what direction? In front of me. What was in front of you? My parents. And I remember firing directly at him. You reloaded? Is that yes? Yes. And what did you do after you reloaded? I ran around and shot my mom. This is the woman who gave birth to them. This is what they did to their mother. The jury and heard tapes of the brother's confession to Dr. Ozeal. When their turn came, Eric and Lyle Menendez told a rapt courtroom that the murder of their parents was an act of self-defense. They said they were in fear of their lives from a controlling father who had been sexually abusing them. He raped me. Did you cry? Yes. Did you bleed? Yes. Were you scared? Very. Lyle said his abuse stopped when he was eight, but that he didn't know until just before the murders that Eric was being molested too. What do you believe was the originating cause of you and your brother ultimately winding up shooting your parents? Um, me telling. You telling what? Me telling Lyle that, uh... You telling Lyle what? <laughs> was it you telling Lyle about something that was happening? My dad. My dad had been molesting me. The brother's testimony was compelling and effective. Relatives testified on their behalf about incidents in which their father treated the sons harshly, though none of them could actually confirm the allegations of sexual abuse. The jurors could not decide between verdicts of murder and manslaughter. I find that the jury is hopelessly deadlocked and uh, the court declares a mistrial. In August of 1995, now six years after their parents' murders, the Menendez brothers went on trial again. This time, there were no video cameras. Eric testified, but Lyle chose not to. Judge Stanley Weisberg again presided, but in a major blow for them, limited the brothers' claims to self-defense. There were far fewer grounds this time for a possible verdict of manslaughter. The jury deliberated for less than four days. The verdict... Lyle and Eric Menendez, both guilty of first-degree murder. 
The jury spent three more days deciding between life and death. The verdict here was life in prison with no parole. The Menendez brothers have spent more than six years in this building, the Los Angeles County Jail. Eric lives in the identical cell next to this one. It measures seven and a half by nine feet. Lyle's cell in another wing of the jail is slightly smaller. Both brothers are segregated from the general population. Each of the brothers separately is allowed up to three hours of exercise a week on the jail's roof. Eric and Lyle Menendez will be moved to state prison, perhaps even to separate prisons, this summer. Our interview took place in the jail's administrative wing, some distance from their cells. You may find Eric and Lyle Menendez to be cunning and manipulative, as their second jury seems to have, pronouncing them guilty of first-degree murder. Or like many of the jurors at their first trial, you may decide that they are credible and that their story strikes a sympathetic chord. That is perhaps for you to determine. My job was to ask the questions, beginning with this one. What went through your minds when you heard that verdict? First degree murder, guilty. That I was going to spend the rest of my life in prison uh, without any possibility of ever getting released. And uh, you, you just, you're devastated. I was devastated. Could have been death. Did you think that? I was terrified that that they would give either one of us uh, death, and that's, that's scary. It's important to you to stay together when you get moved to the state prison? Very important. That is what's gotten us through these six years, and, and through our life. Um, I, the family that Eric and I grew up in, we had to be there for each other throughout, and it really created a bond that that gets us through very rough periods. Some people might say, why should we put them together? I mean, look what they did. They should be punished as much as possible. Let's separate them. What do you say to that? You know people will say that, some. Um, there's, there's nothing to say to that. Um, what we did it was awful, um, and I wish I could go back. We will spend the rest of our life in prison. But if I'm not, if I'm not, if we're not put in the same prison, uh, there's a good probability I will never see him again. And, and that, uh, that I, some things that you cannot take and there's some things that you can endure uh, with everything taken away, would be the last, uh, you know, it's the last thing you can take. Do you think the media has portrayed you fairly? Can you tell? I don't know if anyone can be portrayed fairly in the media, who they are. Well, let me say it. There are people, a great number of people, who think that you two are spoiled brats, that you are evil, that you are monsters. What do you say to them? That's not who I am, but I can't defend that because I came from a family of wealth. It doesn't make me spoiled. I would be surprised if anybody that was present at the trial and, uh, and saw the whole thing, rather than snippets on the news, uh, would feel that. A jury found you both guilty. Right, but I don't think you aren't guilty because they found you spoiled. Mm -hmm. um, or evil. Or evil. Just a normal... I'm just a normal kid. Oh, Eric, you're a normal kid who killed your parents. Yeah, I know. And you still say you're a normal kid? Well, I, I didn't have normal experiences, but I, I am. I, I, I did that, and there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about what happened and wish that I could, I could take that moment back or change what happened. But it... It's, it's hard to live with that. Do you feel remorse? Tremendous remorse. Um, and I think... Uh, There's tremendous pain. I mean, from the second that I got back to the house after the shootings, 
I saw what happened and I said, this is wrong. This is awful. How could this have happened? I what? couldn't accept it. You couldn't accept it, but you called the police. You pretended that you hadn't done it. You, you cried. You went off on a spending spree. I mean, we all read about it. You bought Rolexes, you bought cars, you bought... You didn't say, oh my God, what have I done? And turn yourself in. Well, that's not... That's not really what Well, I've sort of stuck it all together, but... <laughs> yeah, you did a good job at it. Uh, we got back to the house, the police were there, and uh, it was a matter of, 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 of telling him you did it or, or just saying, I don't know who did it, and that's what we did. And uh, if I could go back, perhaps I'd say I did it. And part of that started from the fact that we waited afterwards and the police did not come. And in, the, in that time that we waited and waited, you know, we did make a bad decision to not have to... We expected the police to be there. I mean... You expected the police to come the there and arrest you? Twelve shots in the middle of Beverly Hills on a Sunday night and no one calls the police. We're waiting at the house. No one shows up. And I, I still can't believe it. So you called the police, but at that point, you had already decided... We had decided not to. you weren't going to say anything. We were very uh, stunned, and we felt that um, we would go to jail, obviously, and, and we... It was a selfish reason to just not want to have to go through that. What about spending the money? You know, cars, watches, invested in businesses, the good life. Well, it was, it was the same life uh, before or afterwards. With more money. With, with more money, but I didn't know what to do with the money. I went to, it got to a point where I have, I have all this money and so much pain, I don't know what to do with it, and eventually... I don't know, you're losing me. I would think that you would be in such grief that you wouldn't be able to buy Rolexes and invest in businesses. I don't... Explain I don't, to me, let me understand. I'm, you know, I'm the public. I don't think that it's understandable, I mean, I... People react to a traumatic event like that in different ways. You went to your psychologist, Dr. Ozeal, and told him that you had committed this crime. It got to a point where I could no longer live. I felt that I was the worst person on earth, and I, 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 it got to a point where I couldn't live with myself anymore, and I needed help. And so I went to him, and that is what the catalyst was for me getting arrested in Lyle. You've had a lot of therapy. Six years of intense therapy. How are you different than the man who came in here? I'm six years older. I'm a lot more mature. I came in here as an 18-year-old kid who didn't know anything uh, about What did you learn about yourself? I learned that, that I learned what love was about. Uh, I learned what love was about because of my grandmother, because of all my relatives who who didn't say, I can't believe you did this. Instead, they said, Eric, I know who you are. You're not this type of person. You're not the type of person who could do this for no reason. Have you had therapy, Lyle? The same, the same therapy, and um, has, it, it really uh, works to just have someone you can communicate with that's willing to listen. All our lives, uh, it was just sort of fending off things. It almost sounds like prison was a good thing for you. It was. It was? I mean, at first, I, mean, I, I killed my parents, and I spent six months out there in horrible agony because I had done this. I mean, a, a year before, I told my mother how much I loved her. I could not have imagined doing this even a week before to her. I, I, I adored her. And then suddenly you're arrested, and everyone can know you did it, and you can finally tell people, and it's a relief. Lyle, you're looking at your brother like you almost never heard this before. Tell me how you felt. You know, for me, uh, emotionally being in, in prison conditions was, was really not, emotionally was not a shocking difference from the life we had lived because we, we lived really a very f stressful, fearful life.
Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. And I'm very excited today to have my first juror on Crime Analyst and a really incredible woman who I'm going to allow to introduce herself, and then we're going to get into the case. So please go ahead, Hazel, and introduce yourself for my listeners. My name is Hazel Thornton, and I was juror number nine on the first Eric Menendez uh, jury. The, the the first trial had one jury for each brother, Lyle and Eric, and I was on Eric's jury. And I voted for manslaughter, as did half of the jurors on both juries. And in our case, on Eric's jury, it was split along gender lines, unfortunately. And 30 years later, I keep waiting for the other shoe to drop. It's like, what am I going to learn about the Menendez brothers that's going to make me regret my decision to vote for manslaughter and not murder? And I have not learned anything like that. Everything I learn about them, they're not perfect, but everything I learn about them makes me admire who they've grown up to be and stick with my verdict based on the evidence I was given at the time. Well, that's very interesting. I mean, firstly, that you said that they weren't perfect and nobody is. I mean, we know that, right? And I think most people expect people to be perfect and have no skeletons in, in the closet. But let's frame the case for my listeners. I have a lot of people who listen to crime analysts in Australia, in the UK. Now, in America, this was one of the most notorious cases that in terms of media profile, well, there was sort of a feeding frenzy around the case, wasn't there, when these two boys, and they were boys to men, they were still very young, Eric was 18, had just turned 18, and Lyle was 21, and they went on trial for killing their parents, Jose and Kitty Menendez, and they killed them in Beverly Hills, which again is an area, an enclave of Los Angeles that is very well-to-do, very affluent, very little crime, and they were sort of presented as these preppy boys, these greedy rich kids. That was very much the narrative that was in the media leading up to the trial. And we go back in time when we don't, well, we have to situate it. There wasn't social media. There wasn't a balance of information being put into the media. And then the trial started and you were one of the people that ended up on that jury. So can you take us back in time to... What happened in terms of you being contacted? This was 1993, I believe, and you were working as a telecoms engineer in Pasadena, California, and you were summoned to do jury service. Can you take us back there to that time? I can. Can I say just one thing right off the bat about greedy rich kids? Did you know that the grand jury on this case did not return an indictment of murder for financial gain? They were given that opportunity and they chose not to because they didn't think there was enough evidence of that. Yes, I thought that was very interesting, actually. And right now there's a lot of discussion about grand jury, particularly given a number of high profile cases and what the grand jury's role is in determining um, what charges would stand and which cases and which charges go to trial. And that was the one that they didn't indict on, this financial motive, which really was the only thing that was offered up, that this was about money, this was about greed. This was about these two terrible, spoiled brat kids who just decided just out of the blue to kill their parents. That really was sort of the dominant narrative, the bits that I do remember of it at the time. But since then, Hazel, you and I have spoken before on Real Crime Profile, and I was so interested in what you had to say that I wanted to invite you back onto Crime Analyst. And I've been digging in the case before we spoke, and I still have since. And I, I know you've got your book out, and I think it's really important people do read your book, Hung Jury, The Diary of a Menendez Juror. And I've also been going through Rob Rand's book, The Menendez Murders, which is, but I mean, both of you have done updates and that's what's really interesting. But there's new evidence in the case, which I think is fascinating. And we'll get to the new evidence because this case is really, it, it's only just, I think, being understood. I think it's just only now being understood as well. When my book was updated... That was before what I call the Menendez miracles. There are so many things that have happened since my book was updated. That was a 20 years later version. Now it's been 30 years later. So you wanted to know what it was like for me back then. All I knew 
from the media was that they were greedy rich boys. And when I was called for jury duty, I was shocked to find out that they don't tell you before you get there what the trial is about. And I was shocked to find out that it was the Menendez case because that had happened four years earlier. I thought it had been settled. I thought everybody knew they were greedy rich kids and were guilty. And so that's that's where I was starting from when the trial started and they started presenting evidence to me. And I swore to keep an open mind and only make my decision from what I learned in the courtroom. And it sounds like that's what you did. And I I think it is important that people understand there isn't social media where other people are digging in case files and coming up with these alternative points of view or evidence. This was very much what was put in the media was very much the DA's narrative, the prosecution's narrative. And I think most people might not understand that that's the narrative. They controlled it at the time. So it's no wonder you went into that case thinking, well, this is done and done. I mean, this is very obvious what happened. To be fair, it took a long time for Eric and Lyle to confess that they had been abused. They didn't want to talk about that. They didn't want to dishonor their family. They didn't want to dishonor their parents who they loved. Even people who are abused love their parents. Yes. And that's why it's so conflicting. I think, you know, to understand why they did what they did, you have to walk right back to them as children and what was going on in the family. Whereas for all intents and purposes, people thought that they had this perfect life, that they lived behind this gated house, they had tennis lessons, they were loved and cared for, and they had this kind of preppy image that everything was perfect. And then you've got almost out of the blue, these very violent and gruesome murders and bloody murders in the middle of Beverly Hills. And that was a complete contradiction. But going back in time, well, what was your view actually going in? But it's not a contradiction if you, when you consider the the expert witnesses' testimony, the psychological expert witnesses, we had Dr. Ann Tyler talking about how various types of abuse affect a child's brain at each stage of development. She concluded that they were actually incapable of planning a murder. And Dr. Ann Burgess, who at the time, I mean, I'd never heard of her, but now she's very famous. And she helped the FBI formulate a methodology for crime scene analysis. And her finding was that the disorganization in the scene, people refer to it as being violent, but it's also technically speaking, considered to be disorganized, which indicates a lack of planning. So that was part of what we went through as a jury, is to learn things from expert witnesses that explained what happened, that that a lot of people in the public did not get that information. And they certainly didn't get it from the defense, and they certainly didn't get it from the media. And when they did get it, they're like, oh, that's bullshit. You know, that's a psychobabble. That's one, one of the Prosecution attorneys termed it as psychobabble. I think they really underestimated the juries, but they really set the scene for the public to agree that it was psychobabble 30 years ago. Yes, which I take great offense to, seeing as I am somebody who's trained in forensic and legal psychology and behavioral analysis. And there is so much to behavior to discern. I've spent my life unraveling behavior in cases where it's known abuse, i.e. someone that's known in the family, but also outside of the home. So looking at crime scenes, looking at patterns, looking at behavior. And Dr. Ann Burgess, yes, and most people know her through the Mindhunter shows now, but she testified that she believed that the boys had been sexually abused. And in fact, everything that I've seen and understood about the case is that this was a case of coercive control and very um, severe torture, abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. There were rules and regulations for the boys that they had to behave in a certain way. And even when they were being taught to swim, Jose would hold their heads underwater and take them to a point of almost drowning and fear-induced. And he would say, well, this would teach them to swim better. This will get them to be stronger. 
And he would come out with all these things as to why he was raining down this really harsh, authoritarian, I don't even want to say approach, because to me, it's just very clear it's abusive in every way, shape or form. It wasn't just one type of abuse that you heard about, was it? It was multiple forms of abuse. And so when I use the words, this violent and bloody crime scene, that's what the detectives go into, and they just see this absolutely horrific scene. And obviously, it was the boys that called 911. And then they start to understand that they lied. And then they're framed in this very clinical narrative that they just, out of the blue, premeditated this murder and decided to kill their parents because they wanted their money, which just doesn't make sense at all. But of course, that's what they pushed on you. And I say they just killed their parents. They're freaked out. Of course, they're crying on the 911 call. And of course, they're lying. They don't want to get caught. They don't want to go to jail on top of everything else. <laughs> exactly. And so that makes sense. It wasn't a trial about whether they did it. It was really a trial about why and how they did it. And I think the prosecution, the, their greatest misstep was the emotional aspect of the jurors, i.e., that you heard from 50 plus witnesses that talked to the abuse. And those 50 plus witnesses were family members. They were friends, they were teachers, they were coaches. They were people who really understood the family and knew the dynamics of what was going on. So it was much more a case of this was the continuum of what happened and that they were in fear and that they felt that there was an omni threat and that that threat was omnipresent and that Jose as a perpetrator was omnipotent, which all the things I'm describing is what happens with a coercive controller. They do become omnipotent. Their threats are omnipresent. It's not just in the moment that the threats are made. They are constantly around and in the victim's head to the point that the victims will self-regulate without the perpetrator being there. So actually when you it's like building blocks. When you build together the picture and it's not just Jose either. They thought Kitty was omnipotent as well. She was Jose's right-hand man, if you will. She was not on their side. She was on his side. Yes, and that's not unusual with a coercive controller, the head of the household. He very much said to them that they were his rules, it was his family, things would happen his way. And I believe Kitty was very much drawn into that. She wanted to be the housewife. She wanted to have the children, but she also wanted to be the attention or the person that got the attention from Jose. And yet he seemed to be obsessed with the boys. And there seemed to be, from what I've read anyway, and certainly in Robert Rand's book, quite serious and severe abuse of Kitty, of her being raped by Jose and her being humiliated and abused in front of the boys and the boys being told to abuse their mother because men are men and they have to be head of the household. So you've got this incredibly, and I'm not even going to use the word dysfunctional, you've got this insidious abuse and they're living by these rules, Jose Menendez's rules. So it's not like we can judge them on our families and our systems, our structures, our processes, our relationships. We have to have experts to describe what was going on for them. And I thought it was very interesting you saying that the boys didn't want to talk about the abuse. They didn't want to talk about what had happened to them because they felt shame and that they were dishonoring their family. Can you say a little bit more about that? Well, first of all, they were, at the time, people were not talking about boys being abused by their fathers. And they were barely, they were not even quite yet talking about boys being abused by clergymen or people in positions of power who were not relatives. And then plus they were from a Hispanic community that especially didn't talk about things like that. And then there was the overlying issue of Jose calling Eric gay, even though there was never ev any evidence that he was gay. There was no evidence presented to us that he was gay. He, he was called that as an insult on top of being sexually molested by a man, how many things can go wrong in this scenario? It was, yeah. it was like the perfect storm of dysfunction. Something bad had to happen. There's, there's nothing good that could have come from that. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. 
so he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Yes, I think you mentioning they were Hispanic and where they'd come from in terms of a family, Jose being an immigrant and working so hard, bootstrapping himself and the shame and the humiliation of this happening and being boys to men and not talking about abuse now we talk about abuse and now we talk about boys being raped by men as well. But thinking about Jose Menendez and what he did to Eric of abusing him from what we know from the age of five and calling him a faggot, that word, which tells me that he knew exactly what he was doing to disempower and create as much psychological discombobulation and distress within Eric as he possibly could. That tells me how sadistic he was and how he wanted to break down Eric and keep him controlled. And of course, we know that came up at the second trial, but how conflicting. And I I know when we last talked as well, I mentioned that the different types of abuse. And I said, well, the sexual abuse, we did hear people give testimony to that Jose Menendez would take each boy into a room and then other people weren't allowed to walk past that room and that Kitty made sure that people didn't and that the boys wouldn't come down for dinner or whatever it might be. And Jose would come down and say that, you know, one of them wasn't feeling well. And that would be that. And I said, well, it wasn't as overt, but actually I did find a photo of the two boys sat on Jose Menendez's lap and Lyle is staring straight at the camera, almost defiant. And I looked at his face and wondered why a little boy would be looking quite so defiantly at the camera. And then I see that he's actually pulled back into Jose Menendez's crotch and then Jose has his hand cupping his genitals and then Lyle's hand is sort of interlinked, his fingers are like held down by pressure by Jose's hand. And I can see that Eric is sat there sort of looking away from camera, smiling. But the way that the boys are pulled into his genitals and this cupping of of Jose Menendez cupping Lars' genitals made me feel, it made me feel so uncomfortable because to me, that's an image where it's very overt what's going on, particularly when we know the history and just the enjoyment of Jose Menendez. We know sex offenders do do this. They have pictures and it's part of the grooming and they might put it up around around their house and it's a message both to the children, don't speak out because people know about this and they're not doing anything. And that's how little boys intuit it, that people know and they're not doing anything, but it gives them satisfaction and that power and control and gratification. So it sounds to me like some of it was overt and I don't know whether you heard more about that at the trial or not in terms of what was seen by other people regarding the sexual abuse? There was more about sexual abuse, but I have several things to say about sexual abuse. One is that I always say, because people say that they didn't prove sexual abuse. Well, I know now that there was more evidence of sexual abuse in that case than in almost any case that is successfully prosecuted these days. That's one thing. Another thing is, it wasn't the defense's burden to prove sexual abuse. It was the prosecution's burden to prove the elements of murder, which they didn't do. And third of all, if I say that if they took sexual abuse completely out of the equation, you've still got neglect, physical abuse, mental abuse, and emotional abuse. So that's why that's why I talk about it as being a, a tapestry of the Menendez tapestry. If you if you tug at one thread like sexual abuse and you ignore all of the other evidence 
that made up all the rest of their lives, and you remove that thread altogether, there's still a pattern. You're not ruining the pattern by removing the one thread, whatever it is you pick on, whichever witness you want to discredit, whichever little, well, they did this, that must have meant that. It, It doesn't matter which one you pick at. It does not ruin the Menendez tapestry of what their lives looked like and how they would be terrified by the time, in the moment, that they killed their parents. Yes, and I think that's a very important point. You can take pieces away, but the picture is still there. And the picture of abuse, well, in Robert Rand's book, he details a lot of the abuse. And so when people even say the word abuse, well, what do we mean by that? Well, he details Peter Carno. He detailed Peter Carno being at the house with his daughters and Lyle, who's five, was running around and Jose told him to stop. And he refused to. He carried on running. And Jose Menendez picked him up and whispered something in his ear, which made him wet himself. Whatever that was, was so frightening. And then he proceeded to put his hand into a closed fist and punch him in the stomach so hard, he completely winded him and then ran him out the room and put him in his bedroom. And Peter tried to challenge him and said, you can't treat children like that. And Jose turned around and said, it's my family, my children, my house, my rules. And if you don't like it, get out. It's all true. Robert and I sat across the, we didn't know each other at the time, but we sat across the the courtroom from each other during the entire first trial. He also sat through the second trial and nothing. The first one, he sat through both trials. I only followed the second one from the media, the prosecution bias media. But I took lots of notes. I was paying attention. And I'm glad that you've recently read his book because I don't like trying to dredge up those details in my mind and repeating them. But yeah, all that was evidence in the trial. And I was going to ask how it impacted you because when I started digging into the detail, and I am a details person, and I believe you are too, I have to be in my work to know what level of abuse we're talking about and to understand whether there's authenticity or whether there's deception. Um, I also watched Lyle give evidence via the first trial and saw nothing that made me feel that there wasn't authenticity. In fact, you know, he was very clear and he just wanted the abuse to stop. That was the plan. And that's often what I hear from victims. They just want the abuse to stop. They still love the person. And that's where it becomes conflicting. But listening and watching, hearing the abuse the way that Jose was just so cruel and so controlling and so domineering to those little boys where they felt that they had no other escape, no ability to have their own autonomy and their own agency. And of course, over time, what we know, I mean, with coercive control, it is like hostage taking. It's like being a prisoner of a war, of war. You don't have your own thoughts. You do everything on eggshells to the needs and desires and wants of the perpetrator. And Jose Menendez ruled that family and made sure everything was done the way that he wanted it to be done. And those boys were so dependent on the family, on his, on their mother and father. But that tells me everything that they decided. And, you know, ultimately Eric saying he couldn't take any more of the abuse. And then you have both mum and dad being killed. But everything that was said in terms of the detail just sounded horrific and torturous. Eric, sorry, it was Lyle brought home a bunny rabbit from school and Kitty said he couldn't keep it. So he hid it upstairs. And when he went to find the bunny rabbit, he couldn't see where it was. So he asked his mum and she said to check the trash. And Jose Menendez had tortured it and killed it and threw it in the rubbish which for a little boy, these messages that are constant of fear and threat and dread, that it's very hard in the cold light of day for a jury to hear all these details together of what they mean for the child, but they're living it, they're breathing it, the door opening, them being sexually abused and being raped, never knowing what's coming next, being thrown over board of a boat and being told they have to swim back to shore and that's the only way they're going to learn to swim. It's this constant disempowerment. And I just was so perplexed by how the jury could hear that, hear nothing good about Jose Menendez. In fact, he had no friends. He didn't have anyone, I believe, say that he was a good person only what fear and how he enjoyed belittling other people. And he was very harsh 
and he really enjoyed uh, making people feel small. This characterization of him, Hazel, I found A, interesting, but B, why wasn't it that the jury understood who he was and how he put the fear of God into these two boys who are now men? Why were six of you? I think that one of the first things that people have to consider when they're trying to figure out what they think about the case, I mean, the first question is, were they abused? And I say, it doesn't matter because, I mean, I, I believe they were, but even if they weren't, there's all kinds of other types of abu- I mean, uh, sexual abuse. There's all kinds of other types of abuse that also add up. And then if you don't believe that, if you don't believe that they're, if you don't, if you don't believe their story, because they're the ones telling the story. Now, there's 50 people corroborating their stories. And if you don't believe them, I don't know what to say. But if you don't believe their story, then you have to consider burden of proof. And has the the prosecution proven the elements of murder? Well, they just offered up one theory after another. And I think in addition to not believing them, the men on my jury, because we were split down gender lines, they didn't believe them. And one of the reasons they didn't believe them is because they themselves are liars the jury men. Some some of them thought, well, men lie. So these men probably lied. But I think they also felt pressure that they had a sense of what was going on in the world about people not believing the Menendez brothers, what was being presented by the media about the Menendez brothers. And they didn't want to look like fools. They didn't want to look like softies. They didn't want to look like they believed their story. And it's not all men didn't believe them at that time. It just happened to be on my jury, six against six. And so I think there were a lot of things going on with the people who did see every minute of the trial, why some of them didn't believe their story, didn't vote in their favor. And then after the trial, it's like, how do you explain this to people? How is it possible to sum up five months worth of testimony in order to get someone else to feel the panic that they felt at that time, in order to convince someone. So I'm not in the business of convincing somebody, but I consider it to be one of the Menendez miracles that Court TV in 2020 uploaded all of the footage from the first trial to their website so that people like you can watch what we watched. It's, It's a blessing that other people can watch what we watched. And, and a lot of people do. It, it takes hours and hours and hours to watch it all, but some of them do. And those people who do watch the whole thing, now that it's been 30 years later, they get it. They're like, I don't understand what happened here. How did this happen? In the f-? And then so, sometimes they forget that there were two trials and they forget all the differences between the two trials and how it was possible for the second trial to come up with a murder verdict if they heard all this evidence. Well, they didn't. That's the answer. They didn't hear all this evidence in the second trial. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger, and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. 
That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 10% off your first order. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, lovely listeners. If you like this episode, please feel free to share it with others and take a moment to support my sponsors. All sponsors are on my website, crime-analyst.com, and the promo codes will be there too and in the show notes. My sponsors allow me to bring Crime Analyst to you, so please consider supporting those who support this show. Thank you. Yes, there's so much that you said there. I think being able to watch the testimony and see it for yourself and seeing, for me, the the pain that Lyle was in, it was such a different portrayal, right? It was so raw and so real and so authentic. You can't act that. It's almost impossible to, particularly for someone who is not an actor, just the things that he said and the fact that he wasn't forthcoming about it. Whereas most false alleges, they get straight to the point. They want to get that in there immediately, but... Neither of them did. They felt it was their shame and their humiliation and and their pain, and they didn't want people to hear about it. And the fact that they were emotionally immature as well, almost stunted because of the abuse, that's what we often see, actually, with abuse of survivors, those who survive it, because many of them take their own lives. And, you know, that happens too. So the suicidal side can become homicidal, and we see that as well. And I've asked many um, victims and survivors if they thought or ruminated at any point about killing the perpetrator, and I can't think of one case where they didn't. And so we can't disconnect that, that when you are fearful for your safety and you fear that you will never have your own autonomy or agency and that your life, you are so entrapped, and the person who is the threat may well escalate their behaviour to you, anything is possible. And I think that's very interesting. How do you describe five months of all the testimony that you heard to make your decision when people talk in sound bites a lot, right? Particularly about cases and they're nuanced and they're detailed. So yes, the blessing of court TV for the first trial, but of course the second trial was so different. And one of the questions I was left with, and I think I asked it when when we spoke, but one of the questions I was left with was, how, when you have the same judge, could the trials be so different, but how could that judge make a decision, having heard all those witnesses, to exclude many of them from the second trial? What was underpinning that decision? Because I do believe that most people are child-centric, who do want to protect children who work within the criminal justice system. Not everybody, but most. So why was Judge Stanley Weisberg so different in the second trial? And some of the things that raised red flags for me was him saying things like, this isn't a PTSD trial, and the minutiae of the first trial. And I couldn't equate that with what both Lyle and Eric had gone through to be described as, well, it's not a PTSD trial, told me that that's what he wanted to ensure people didn't hear about everything about the abuse and how it impacted, but also regarding that systematic abuse across 12 plus years as being minutiae or trivial, you couldn't be far from it. And so I started digging into him. Why did he make those decisions? And it just felt that it came from a place. And I know that you have something on your website now, which uh, you sent me, but I felt that it came from a place of, of something other. And then I found the cases that went before the Menendez case. You know, a very obvious one was the O.J. Simpson and Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman was he got acquitted. So you've got a wife beater who's proven a wife beater, multiple allegations, who for all intents purposes kills The death penalty wasn't put on the table for him, but it was for Eric and Lyle. And I couldn't understand that decision either, which is why I just kept digging and found the Rodney King case that Judge Weisberg presided over, which resulted 
in four LAPD officers being acquitted or being found not guilty. And then there were other cases before that. Well, he was a, the prosecutor in the in Ricky Lyle. That's the first one I was thinking of. Yeah, the 1987 case where, again, it resulted in a 17-day jury deliberation and the jury returned the verdict of manslaughter. And this was a young man who killed his father. And the abuse was put before the court. And I believe that the prosecutor was very unhappy about the outcome of that case. So Ricky Lyle gets manslaughter. And then you had pointed out the McMartin preschool case in 1992, which was a huge case here, really huge. I mean, it was the most expensive trial and one of the longest running trials, I believe, that resulted in no conviction. Can you just say a little bit about that? For there were art- I didn't know it at the time, but there were articles at the time about how the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office was a laughingstock for not having been able to successfully prosecute all these cases. There was a whole string of them. And my question is, why is it a win or lose proposition? Do we not have trials in order to find out the truth? Why am I as a juror supposed to have an open mind if you as a prosecutor are bound and determined to convict? I don't understand that to this day. I call the chart I have on my website, I call it pressure to convict. It doesn't have the Ricky Lyle case on it, but it has all the others. And it has who the judge and DA were in each case. And it was always either Weisberg as the judge or Gil Garcetti as the DA or both. I believe that they colluded in, they engineered these murder convictions by, in a number of ways. The main way is by curtailing by, by changing up the rulings about what, what evidence could be presented at trial. And the prosecution, having had a, a five-month... I was on jury duty for seven months, if you count jury selection and deliberations, but the trial itself was five months with the evidence. And they, they, so that was like a tri- five-month trial run for the prosecution. I mean, there's no more evidence. It's not like they were going to find out anything else. They, they knew what the defense had. They lopped a bunch of it off, and they presented it all in a different order. And, and when, they, when they had a witness in the first case that was laughable or lying, they just didn't use them in the second case. So the, the second trial jury, they saw a completely different trial than we did, and I don't blame them one bit for reaching a, a conclusion of a murder verdict because they went with what they saw in their trial. And I don't blame the jury in any way. I blame the judge and the DA for having engineered murder convictions. I mean, it's really concerning, isn't it, that you have, you're meant to have really the second trial, putting the evidence before the court to see whether the jury determine something similar or different and to orchestrate it in such a way so that the jury don't hear the facts and the evidence. He really limited what they did hear about, particularly in terms of the abuse. And what what really disturbed me, Hazel, in the second trial was David Conn, who basically said, and I just want to quote him, he said that the abuse is a, is a total fabrication, that it was a script, it was the silliest story ever told in a courtroom, and the perfect example of the abuse excuse. How do you feel hearing that, having sat through the first trial? The abuse excuse is, is a hot button for me because people like Alan Dershowitz, who coined that phrase and wrote a whole book about it and talked about it on and on and on in the media, what, what's the public supposed to think? He was a respected person at the time who people were listening to. So they're not going to learn anything about the psychology of abuse that way. And they're not going to learn what really happened in the Menendez case that way either. And abuse is not an excuse, it's a, but it's certainly an explanation for how such a, an event could come about. And that's the really important part. It's the explanation of how they got to that place. And that's what the trial should have been about, the psychology and understanding how they took that decision. The decision, as we know, is not one that is a good decision to take. And that's not saying that murder is the option but when there are murder and manslaughter offences for this very reason and to not allow the jury to hear the full facts and the evidence to make the determination, it, for me, it's just biased and it 
smacks of a political double standard that there's justice for some and not for others and for OJ Simpson to walk free because of decisions that the prosecution team took, quite frankly. And these are their spectacular failures. Not to be critical and try and improve for the right reasons is the thing that irks me the most because the serious consequences of these cases of the victims, the families, you know, there are very serious consequences that are still ongoing for the families and for Eric and Lyle, who are still in prison some 33 years later. And I think David Kahn, again, one of the sentence, well, one of the things that he said post-sentencing was this, it's very gratifying to see that justice was done in this case. Judge Weisberg did his job by keeping out trivial accusations. And that just makes me really angry, trivial accusations. Well, the word accusation and accuser is always used to discredit someone. But to say that the abuse that they suffered was trivial is just disgusting, quite frankly, because for me, I just feel they lied. He lied when he said that. He may not have known all the detail of it, but to say there was no abuse and that's why he didn't present anything or the criminal defence lawyer didn't present any because there was none when it was kept out of the trial. That, to me, it's a hoodwinking and it's a duping and it's manipulative and it had very serious consequences and it's an outright lie. I mean, it's just not factually accurate. And to be able to get away with that is what irks me the most. And it doesn't get at what really happened in the case. The theory of defense in the first trial was imperfect self-defense. It wasn't pure self-defense, which is not a crime, but it's a manslaughter offense as opposed to a murder verdict, if you believe their story, or if you believe that the prosecution has not proven their case. And the second trial was not even offered the option of imperfect self-defense. It was basically either murder or guilty or not guilty. And of course, they found them guilty because that's all the evidence they had. But in the penalty phase, they were offered some of the abuse evidence. And as a result, they voted to let them live as opposed to put them to death. They were all, and we were all, what they called death qualified. If the evidence leads towards guilt in the next logical, I don't know the legal term for it, but we were all what they called death qualified. But they decided, hmm. If we'd known this in the in the um, evidence phase, the verdict phase, I forget what it's called, we might not have voted for murder, some of them said. And that's depressing. That's huge. I'm jumping in here to wrap this incredibly insightful interview with Hazel Thornton. So there will be a part two, but I really do want these incredibly important points to sink in. The matter relating to coercive control and sexual abuse and clear physical evidence that there was abuse that was happening by Jose Menendez and that being withheld from the jurors in the second trial. As you heard Hazel say, it was only at the second trial in the penalty stage in a death penalty case that the jurors heard evidence of the abuse. In other words, it was withheld from them. That's very significant, particularly right now, as a new habeas has been submitted by Mark Geragos and Cliff Gardner on behalf of Eric and Lyle Menendez. Now, an update on that is that the court has issued a ruling on the habeas and it will proceed for now, and you are going to hear much more about that. But also significantly, a Los Angeles Superior Court judge issued a bombshell order on June the 21st, giving Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon 30 days to explain whether prosecutors exercise due diligence when investigating allegations of sexual abuse. Superior Court Judge William C. Ryan wants answers about what was excluded from the jury. Much of the evidence of abuse was excluded, the judge wrote. And I'm quoting from the Los Angeles magazine, Evidence was allowed at the penalty stage and some jurors said they would have made a different decision if they heard it all at the trial. Now, Gascon has 30 days to file a response. His office said, We received the court's order today and the assigned deputy district attorney is in the process of reviewing all the case files and transcripts to specifically address the questions posed by the court. 
So that's fascinating to me. And it's now been extended because DA George Gascon's office has asked for a 90-day extension, and that was agreed on July the 10th. There is so much more to come in this case, so do stay tuned and listen to part two with the amazing Hazel Thornton, and I have some other special guests that are helping me unpick and unravel what was going on behind closed doors and also out in the open in the Menendez household. And I'll be talking to one of the key experts, Dr. Anne Burgess, who assessed Eric Menendez, and you don't want to miss that. Until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst, and if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced, and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.